turn your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 161, we'll begin our time. Yes, yes, excellent. So we've got new books, if you need one, uh, it's coming your way. Let's talk about that for a moment, because there's been some questions as we've, we've kind of run out a couple times. Uh, thank you so much for ordering those. A few things, some of you have asked, we're, we'll talk about this, again, the schedule of Fundamentals of Faith. Uh, many of you have asked, well, how do I structure my time in study leading up to the week? Um, you'll notice that we're going to take the, the subject of bibliology, right? Uh, how to know the Bible, what is the Bible. Uh, we're going to be covering that over several, several weeks. But for you and your study books, that's only one lesson. So it, that's really par parlayed into an additional question of, well, then what do you want me to do the other weeks? So... For these weeks that we really spread it out because we just have some subject matter that we want to go ahead and spend some time in, dip our shovel into, uh, spend time, by all means, do supplemental reading, uh, listen to other sermons on the subject, uh, memorize other scriptures that we are jotting down, whether it be 2 Peter chapter 1 and our memory verse of 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. So spend those times still allowing the doctrine of bibliology to kind of... Uh, kind of soak in that doctrine, so to speak. And you'll have to do that in, in creative ways as we spread out some of the sessions. Does that make sense? Perfect. That does sound a lot better than, than last Sunday. But I welcome the feedback of how, good feedback of if we're improving, we want to get better than last week. So, all right, we're in Psalm 119. You have attendance sheets coming your way. We have new books. If you're making your way to Psalm 119, just to reiterate last week, Again, this Lord's Day, we have the absolute joy again to, to dive into a very, very deep pool. And uh, it's been hot this week. You know, we've had some 100-degree weather, and there's nothing more refreshing than jumping into a really, really cool pool. Now, I'm not talking about bathtub warmth. I'm talking a cool, refreshing pool. And so, in some regards, this series is going to be a lot like that. On one end, you're going to find fundamentals of the faith. Our hope and our prayer is you're going to find it refreshing, right? The days are hot. The world is lost. They need Jesus Christ. And it's getting more and more challenging to, to stand upright in our faith. And we want to stand upright. This is going to be a, a balm to your soul. It's going to be rejuvenating. That's our hope. But it's also going to be strengthening. You know anything about swimming? And I don't know very much other than doggy paddle and treading on water, but it is tiring. And I know that somehow it works the muscles and it increases your capacity to do other things. You are more fit in that exercise. And that in large part, also in life fashion, we want that to be the byproduct of this series. One of the main goals is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what the name of this ministry is, Sunday morning, right? We don't want to be the children that Paul described in Ephesians 4 that are tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Every philosophy that's according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And we see those elementary principles of the world all over the place. The workplace, the news, uh, Government, I mean, it's everywhere that the world is broken. And so this series is going to help us to do a number of things in strengthening us. Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to destroy every speculation and lofty idea raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. This series equips us to do that. It equips us to be faithful to Colossians 2.8, this book that we've been spending a wonderful time in over the last few months with our pastor preaching. Colossians 2.8, see that no one takes you captive, right, by philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. So this is going to strengthen our legs and increase our capacity to be faithful in life. Just to give you a sense of the background before we spend our time in prayer, in case this is your first Sunday. 
Fundamentals of the Faith is a series developed by Grace Community Church. Now, the subject matter is not something that they created. The subject matter are doctrines found in this book. They simply compiled it and structured it in, in a digestible form, which we're grateful It's made up of 13 lessons, of which you and I, we will spread that out over 24 weeks. The purpose and main aim of each of the lessons, they're designed to help solidify your understanding of key biblical doctrines found in God's Word. Okay? We'll start with bibliology. How did we get the Bible? How did it come to us? How was it preserved? Then we'll traverse to he who is the main subject of this Bible, that is God himself, by looking at theology proper. A part of that grand trinity is the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and King. And we will unpack the suitcase that is Christology. And as you're unpacking that suitcase, you, you run across another beloved doctrine for us, and that is soteriology, that we have a Savior who came from the glories of heaven, left those glories, came to this earth, took on a human body, and died a death that we deserve, and was raised on the third day. And in so doing, he procures sinners under God and made them right with him through his own finished work on the cross. So we'll look at soteriology. Part of that wondrous miracle of regeneration and new life is the other component of the Trinity, the person of the Holy Spirit, which we will then look at pneumatology. We will then unpack ecclesiology, study of the church. What is the church? Who is the church? And what is its purpose? And we'll close with a really, really rich time of looking at practical theology or Christian living. Let's turn our attention to Psalm 119 and we'll pray. If you're going to stand, I know you're spread out. It's a challenge. You've got your stuff together. But just for the sake of honor and respect to that which we're going to read, Psalm 119, verse 161. And we'll read through 168. It reads, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this rich day. We're looking forward to this hour and next. As we delve into the issue and subject and wonderful doctrine of inspiration, Lord, we pray that you would enable us in a full room with whistling a seed, Lord, to direct our attention. May it be undivided. Would you energize our efforts to be attentive to that which you have for us? And then, Lord, we also ask and plead that you would soften our hearts and fill us with gratitude for this book that we have this treasure to us. Help us to see it as the great spoil that it is, a treasure to be admired. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. You may have seats this morning. Around 1520, Jacob Lefeuer translated the first French language Bible. There was a group of literate individuals, emerging entrepreneurs, who devoured its early printings and they began meeting secretly in homes to study. Near the Franco-Flemish border with the Dutch interspersed with the French, they referred to themselves as Huis Genuten, which in Dutch is translated as House Oathfellow. Later they would be known as the Huguenots. Now if you're Dutch, and I butchered that pronunciation, forgive me, give me grace. The Huguenots were different in three ways. One, they were literate when only the clergy and nobility could often read. 
Secondly, they were economically independent from the old agrarian feudal systems of land-owning nobles and land-working serfs. Most, you see, were artisans and business owners. But third, they also wanted a participatory Christianity where they could read the scriptures themselves and meditate upon its meaning. In that time, the king ruled by divine will, meaning that if the church law saw it as heretical and punishable by being burned at the stake to own a French-language Bible, the throne was obligated to carry out the punishment. Many of you know, by 1541, John Calvin wrote the Institutes of Christian Religion in Geneva, Switzerland. Within a few years, the French Reformed Church of the Huguenots would adopt Calvin's work to define their theology. Fundamental beliefs and church structure came into focus, which for them featured a representative form of church government. Within 30 years, they had progressed from a ragtag network of secret home churches to a competing expression of the Christian faith. The Huguenots were now a direct threat to the established church. For 50 years, the Roman Catholic Church stiffly resisted the Huguenots in their efforts to establish a competing form of Christianity. What did this entail? Well, over that span of time, the Roman Catholic Church, under divine rule, would ravage the land. They would pay informants to turn in Huguenot after Huguenot family. They would confiscate all of their possessions, and they would burn entire families at the stake. And then came August 24th, 1572, which would go on to be called St. Bartholomew's Day Master. Within a one-week's time, up to 100,000 Huguenots were slain. It was the bloodiest week among French Protestants in the blackest day in French history. Parisian bookbinder Lequite became, became a typical victim of the carnage in that time. He, his wife, and his seven children were roasted to death by a fire made of his own books. Scenes like these were repeated throughout France for several days. In many, town, in many towns, the Huguenots would be herded into jails for their protection. They would then be executed like cattle in a slaughterhouse. Their bodies would be discarded in various rivers in France, causing them to be stained red by the oozing corpses left rotting. History records a wretched smell filled the French air for many weeks after. And scenes of normally shy and unseen packs of wolves streaming down from their cover in the hills to feed on those freshly discarded. The fish in France would literally be unsafe to eat for months on end. We have to ask this morning what would compel these people to be so faithful? Psalm 119 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds grace for That is what compels believers to be faithful. I think the appropriate question would be to ask, can you say the same? I rejoice at your word. I am in awe. I consider it a great treasure. Our hope this morning is that as we move our way to bibliology, that we would stand too like the Huguenots and be faithful. Some of our very definitive obje objectives in this particular lesson, lesson one, would be to explain the origin of the Bible, including Revelation and how God used men to write his word. To give us a brief overview of the Bible, its structure and its basic content. To present the main themes, which is Christ himself, the glory of God, salvation. And to pre present the Bible's claim to be the inspired word of God, as well as impress upon us the authority, veracity, and completeness of the scriptures. You recall that our memory verse for this particular lesson is one many of you know, 2 Timothy 3.16. Can we just read that aloud again this morning? All scripture is inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness. Why spend such a great deal of time on the doctrine of inspiration or the subject of bibliology? Is because every subject matter in the Fundamentals of the Faith series will have its root and its anchor in this book. We have to know a bit about how this book came to us and what it is that we hold. Last week, you recall, we looked at its creation. You can't look at its creation and where did the Bible come from without understanding a bit about the revelation of God. Many of you will remember, what are two channels of which God has revealed himself when we talked about the revelation of God? What kind of revelation? Anyone recall? General or natural? Excellent. Any other? Special. You have general revelation and special revelation. General revelation being God is revealing himself in creation, Romans 1, but also in our conscience, Romans 2.14. You also have special revelation, which is God's written word. Now, I want to ask you this morning, Let's have some dialogue back and forth as the room goes deep to speak up for us if you can. What are some common misnomers and misconceptions regarding God's Word? Whether it be in the lives of unbelievers or even in the lives of those who say they're a part of the church. Misconceptions about the Bible. Yes. What's that? Okay, the writers were inspired to write. We'll talk about inspiration. Ah, okay, yes, yes, we'll talk about that. That it was their thoughts, right? Okay. A byproduct of their own ability and power. What else? Yes, we talked about that, that the Old Testament is irrelevant, right? And we have to detach our faith from the Old Testament. Excellent. Thanks, Fox. Anything else? What's that? I can't hear Oh, healthy and wealthy. Okay, and that this book is the recipe or manual to achieve health and wealth. Excellent. Well, there are all sorts of preconceived, really, concepts that really persist where individuals say the Bible either contains errors or it's lost its original meaning throughout 2,000 years or it's irrelevant or it's not supernatural. The list goes on and on and on. And so this week, we're going to cover inspiration of Scripture, which is essentially... God overseeing and directing men to write his words. To give a more broad and robust definition of inspiration, it is that process by which God, as the instigator, worked through individual personalities to produce divinely authoritative writings. A process by which God, as the instigator, worked through individual personalities to produce divinely authoritative writings. A great verse that encapsulates this is 2 Peter chapter 1. But know this, first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, what does it say? Moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Being moved, these men wrote those words down. Now let's have again the back and forth. What are some benefits that you can think of that God would take his revealed word and have individuals actually write it down for us? What are some benefits? Yes. My wife says I've lost half my hearing in the last two years. I think it's true. Okay. Put in terms so that we as humans will understand better. Okay. So maybe it's dumbed down. Maybe it's less than what was revealed to them so that we can digest it. Mr. Jackson? Okay. If it's simply oral, right, it's, you've got the telephone effect of which many of you have played that game. And when it reaches the end of the line, it's nothing like what it was when it began. Excellent. Anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Just the communion we can enjoy at any time. Not just from the Spirit residing within us, who's always with us, but we have a book that we can always take with us and hear from Him. There are tons of benefits that we can ponder regarding the benefits of God writing down His Word. 
one of which many of you have already kind of mentioned, it's just a much more accurate preservation, not the telephone effect, right? A preservation of His Word for subsequent generations. You see, to depend on memory and the repeating of oral tradition is a less reliable method of preserving these words throughout history then they're being written down. You have this grandiose scene at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. God tells Moses, I want you to assemble the people, the men and women and children and the alien who's in your town. Translation of that is, Moses, gather around everyone. So that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Accurate preservation for subsequent generations. Assemble the people. Secondly, it's just the opportunity for repeated inspection of words that are written down. And this repeated inspection of written words leads to more careful study and discussion, which then, a byproduct of that, that leads to greater understanding and more complete obedience. We can examine it at any time. We can put its mirror up against our lives at any moment. And third, God's words and writing are accessible to many more people than they would be if they were simply preserved orally, or if you had to be present to hear it in person. This is a book that can be inspected at any time by any person and is not limited in accessibility. For us, this is a tremendous gift, is it not? You have the reliability, the permanence, the accessibility of the form in which God's words are preserved all of those are enhanced by the fact that they're written down. And yet, while being written down, there's absolutely never any indication that their authority or its truthfulness ever diminishes in that process. Why do we park the car on this subject for so many weeks? Why are we going to study theology and use this book and its doctrine as the primary basis for the study of theology for over 20 weeks. Well, one is because God's written word, He commanded us to study, right? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates on it day and night. Joshua 1, 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to to all that is, and look at that phrase, written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. It's this book, written down by men inspired by God's Word, that Paul describes as being God-breathed. Inspired. He breathed this out to us as a gift. And we have to be very clear when we're talking about inspiration, what is what inspiration is as well as what inspiration isn't we have to be clear about what inspiration is and isn't let's start with what it is not for starters it is not partial or conceptual inspiration what do we mean this is a theory that proposes that only certain aspects of the bible are inspired while other parts are the product of human origin. Proponents of this theory often include the Apocrypha, the Deuterocanon, the Biblical Canon. Inspiration, as we know it in God's Word, is also not natural inspiration. I think one of the students mentioned this a moment ago. This is also called intuition theory. This theory completely and absolutely denies the supernatural element in Scripture. They say that the Bible is simply the product of man's own ability and power. Their, their words are not that which are inspired by God. Their words are simply the byproduct of inspiring men. Men of exceptional characters and giftedness. Inspiration is also not dictation. Part of the doctrine of inspiration is arguing that all the words of the Bible are God's words. 
They're God-breathed. All Scripture is. And when we say and read, all Scripture is God-breathed, at this point, a word of caution is necessary. The fact that all the words of Scripture are God's words should not lead us to think that God dictated every word of Scripture to human authors. When we say that all the words of the Bible are God's words, we are talking about the results of the process of bringing Scripture into existence. If the Bible does not speak of only one type of process or one manner by which God communicated to the biblical authors what He wanted them to write. In fact, there is indication throughout the Scriptures of a wide variety of processes that God used in His grace to bring about the desired results He intended. The author of Hebrews says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at many times and in many ways. Now, sometimes that many ways can tell dictation, but other times that entail dreams and visions, or even hearing the Lord's voice audibly. And still more, sometimes individuals' memories of the words and deeds of, say, Jesus Christ himself were made to be so completely accurate by the Holy Spirit himself that God brought to remembrance every single word and deed that he wanted those apostles to write. What are we trying to say at this juncture? Apparently, when we're looking at inspiration, God used many different methods to see that it's worth hearing. It's not simply dictation. Now there's a frequent musing at this juncture because as you read God's Word, you will note that there's, there's a striking uh, contrast of style and personality among those who were used to write down these words. And we have to ask, well, what do I do with this observation? What do I do when I find the the human personality and the writing style of authors seems to mark in a very pronounced way certain books. What do we make of that? North Lake, all that we're able to say is that God's providential oversight and direction in the life of each and every one of these men was such that every one of their personalities, their background and training, their access to historical data, their ability to assess events around them, as well as their perceptiveness to judge the accuracy of the information in front of them. All of those facets of every single individual were exactly what God wanted them to be. From Moses to the Apostle John, and everyone in between. All of that background personality, style, were exactly what God wanted them to be so that when they went to put pen to paper, those words were fully their own words, but also fully the words that God wanted them to write, words that God would also claim as His own. Which leads us to describe and expound upon what inspiration is. And that is verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal meaning the very words, as well as plenary meaning full and in their entirety. All the words of Scripture are God's Word. Not just the ideas, not just the concepts. All words were meaningfully chosen under the superintendence of God. Now next week, we'll unpack the implications behind that, right? Just the characteristics that if that's the case, and it is, what are the characteristics of Scripture? And we'll look at authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. For us, in our continued journey, we have to ask, how do we know that this Bible is the inspired Word of God? It's a, a question that the world is asking. For starters, the Scriptures claim to be the Word of God itself. The Bible is its best source when the topic of inspiration is discussed. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there are statements that, that indicate God said, the Lord said, the Word of the Lord. 
The scripture repeatedly uses the terms in relation to divine inspiration. In the New Testament, you have something very similar. Paul claimed that the message he and other apostles were proclaiming was from God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Even Paul makes an additional explicit claim of receiving his words from the Spirit of God himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But as it's important to recognize the divine nature of Scripture. This is not a human book. All of these words are the result of divine inspiration. They are exactly, from every first word to every last word, exactly the words that God wanted you to have. Another reason that we know this is just the sheer sovereignty of God to preserve His revealed word. And the sovereignty of God is an important discussion related to this topic because we are a people that believe that God is in control of all things, are we not? And that God's purposes cannot be challenged in any way, right? Isaiah 46, 10, He is the one who declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Part of that good pleasure, people of God, was His Word being preserved and handed down to us, just as He desired it to. I say all that this morning is because hopefully one of the things we leave here this morning is that we have the utmost confidence that God's purposes and will have preserved His Word throughout century after century. And to have that confidence so that you know unequivocally that what you have in your hand is exactly what God intended for you to have, nothing less and nothing more. So that we say with the psalmist, Lord, I rejoice over your law. I consider it a great treasure for sport. Individuals who part of theological liberalism who want to water this down and reject this and deny this, their appreciation for this book is not what it ought to be. It's simply the byproduct of human beings. It's just another work among other exceptional works. And the deterioration of their life and their practice is often a byproduct of the rejection of this doctrine. They grow astray from the very, out the very gate of less than one fundamentals of the faith. This morning, let's talk about now the construction of the Bible. We'll circle back to inspiration and maybe think about some application in a moment. If this book has come to us from God, and it has, well, how do I understand its composition, specifically its construction, as well as its canonization and translation? Just for general information, it's written over 1600 years, from 1500 B.C. to 100 A.D., Written by 40 different authors from all walks of life on three continents and in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It's comprised of 66 books, 39 Old Testament and 27 New Testament, and it covers thousands of years of history and hundreds of years of controversial subjects with absolute, complete harmony and continuity. John MacArthur writes, God has consistently revealed himself throughout the canonical books so that all are in agreement with each other and the whole. There are no contradictions in Scripture. But then we have to ask, well, how is the Bible canon? Those 66 books, how were they recognized? And how did they come to us? And 
If you come out of the Roman Catholic Church, you have to ask, well, why do our Bibles not entail the Apocrypha? When discussing the nature of the canon, it's important to stress that, again, God is in control of all things, meaning God not only superintended the writing of these books, but also providentially collected and preserved those writings that he inspired. Now, while we say that, that God was sovereign to collect and preserve his written word and hand it down to us, at the same time, we cannot exclude human responsibility in that process. In fact, throughout church history, God used human beings to recognize and receive the canon. Just to be clear, the church in no way in that process determined the canon. The church only recognized it and received it, that which God had already inspired and preserved. And there are certain reasons why there are these 66 books and not others. One is just the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authority of His Word. The testimony of God the Spirit to the authority of His own Word. Secondly, is just prophetic authorship, right? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. No prophecy. There we go. Went too far. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Third would just be God's providential care in preserving that which he desires to preserve according to his will. These 66 books were recognized early on and they were handed down to us. God's people also even respond in recognition to God's canon in faith and submission. They were recognized by the churches as they were copied and circulated. Additionally, many of the books in the present canon claim to be the Word of God itself, something that the Apocrypha cannot attest to. In regard to the Old Testament, Christ validated the Old Testament books. Rick, uh, Laird Harris, an inspiration and canonicity of the Bible, writes, When Christ approved of the Old Testament books, he was not promulgating new doctrine. Rather, he was in full agreement with the Jews of his time and was actually approving the teachings on revelation and prophecy which the people of God had held throughout generations, reaching back to the great basic revelations of God, to Moses on the holy mount, to Moses the prophet who was the foreshadow of Christ himself. Christ validated the Old Testament book, but even in regard to the New Testament, Peter recognized that Paul's writings as being equal with Scripture itself as well. These arguments may be used to support the inclusion of the books that we have in our present-day canon. The books that are in our Bibles have the quality of inspiration and they were recognized as the, by the early church as authoritative. Now for us, we have to ask, well still, why not the Apocrypha? And there are a few reasons. One, Christ the Apostles in the early church did not recognize the Apocrypha. Secondly, it was never quoted in the New Testament. And it was never referred by Christ as he did with the Old Testament. Third is that it was written after the time of prophecy had departed from Israel. Fourth, the authors make no claim of inspiration themselves. Fifth, the books were not received as prophetic at the time they were written. And probably the most convincing is that the books of the Apocrypha are internally inconsistent, inaccurate, and contradicts scripture. For instance, you have the book of Tobit teaches that, that almsgiving can save you from death in the dark abode, abode below. Tobit 4, 8. Second Maccabees chapter 12 states that one can make atonement for the dead. And you could go on and on with lists of many more teachings in the Apocrypha that are inconsistent with other biblical teachings. And for those reasons and others, the Apocrypha is not included in the canon today. Now, we realize when we go to the Christian, when we go to a bookstore, that there are what seems like hundreds of different translations that you can choose from. What copy and translation of God's Word do I utilize? 
Well, just let's just point out a few. Let's just talk about the philosophy of translating God's word. There's a spectrum that's included in your notes. We use here at Northway Bible Church the New American Standard Bible. It's of an ilk and a group and a philosophy of translation which tries to adhere to a more wooden, word-for-word -word translation. They want to be as close to the original manuscript as they can while still writing it for us in English. Then across that spectrum, you have in the middle, you have what's called thought for thought. The philosophy of translation is not to just do word for word, but if we could just encapsulate thought for thought, we can still get a faithful translation so that it's digestible to people of the modern era. You swing further across the spectrum to translations like the message, which are not word for word and not even thought for thought, but just simply a paraphrase of the manuscripts themselves. Let's just look at a few examples. And you'll note the difference, and many of you are aware of this. Matthew 6, 9, in it, NASB reads, Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The message reads, With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply, like this, Our Father who are in heaven, reveal who you are. You have Matthew 5, 5. And as we read, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. From Christ's Sermon on the Mount. You have the message that reads the same thing, but paraphrase, You are truly blessed when you are content with just who you are. No more, no less. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and as we read, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The message reads very differently. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. We could go on and on. There's a vast difference between word for word, to thought for thought, and paraphrase. What do we do with that? When you are gifting a Bible, when you are purchasing a Bible for yourself, ensure, obviously, one of our encouragements, encouragements, not that we have any profitable stake in mentioning this, but simply we preach and teach out of the New American Standard. So if you want to be reading day in and day out out of that, which will be expounded upon from the pulpit each Lord's Day, a New American Standard is what we teach from. Why? Again, it's a word-for-word -word translation. That helps us get our minds around a little bit of the origin of the Bible, its construction, its composition, its canonization, its translation. And there's more that can potentially be said about that. And we'll expound upon the characteristics of this word later and its implications. I do want to close by simply asking when we're talking about inspiration, and one of the things you remembered from last week, I mentioned that one of the goals was to know God more than right? The goal is not to simply puff up with knowledge. The goal is not to expand pride in self, but expand awe in God. So why spend so much time on inspiration? It's not so that you can just win an argument and enter into an apologetic punching match with another individual and win your case that this Bible is God's Word. Now, by all means, we, we hope and trust that you would be ready to defend the faith and give an account, right? That you would be sharpened in that apologetic discipline. By all means, as your words are seasoned with salt and actions seasoned with grace, of course. But we have to ask, when talking about inspiration, why does all this matter? I want you to think for a moment what's going on in the broad church today.
And when I say broad church, you have those who say they are a part of the church and are not, but claim to be so. What's going on today? You have a stark difference in terms of how believers are adhering and changing their lives to this book, how they're digesting it and reading it and studying it, how their lives are being impacted and shaped by it. And you look across the spectrum that is Christianity, and I put that in quotes, there's a vast difference that you can notice among certain individuals. And why is that the case? It's because there's something called theological liberalism that has permeated the church at large. And it's been doing so for several, several centuries. Nearly a hundred years ago, J. Gratian Mason, a New Testament professor at Princeton Seminary, published a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It's a book that's become a recognized classic in Christian theology because of its clear explanation of the differences between biblical Christianity as taught in the New Testament and that against theological liberalism. See, in Mason's day, much like our own, liberalism was rapidly infiltrating many churches and seminaries at that time. It continues to today. One of the foundational commitments of theological liberalism is viewing the Bible as merely a human book, a fallible human record of religious thought and experience, they would say. Therefore, according to liberalism, the Bible contains all sorts of historical inaccuracies, internal consistencies, and most importantly, outdated theological and ethical teachings that we must reject and find unacceptable in today's world. You have individuals like Gordon Kaufman, Harvard Divinity School professor, and he writes this, and he really embodies this theological liberalism that we're referencing. Theology is in every respect a human work. Liberal Christian theologians have recognized this clearly, and they have often therefore denounced the claims of traditional theologians to be speaking with the divine authorization as a presumptuous and insidious form of self-idolatry. This sounds like a Harvard professor, doesn't it? Presumptuous and insidious form of self-idolatry. Such claims reflect authoritarian pomposity and demonic authoritarianism. If you read the Bible as simply being that which God revealed to his people, and it is being God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, theological liberals will call you and accuse you of authoritarian composite, demonic authoritarianism. You can see what's happening in the church today and why pulpits are literally, literally crumbling, altogether removed from the stage entirely is because of this. I put in your notes this morning something that you can kind of mull over, and this will have connection points along the way with fundamentals of the faith. There's a great chart that uh, Wayne Grudem put together from this book, Christianity and Liberalism. And he walks through the various doctrines and kind of contrasts what biblical Christianity, that God's Word is inspired, God breathed, every facet, every word of it, and what theological liberalism would espouse. And you'll look through every doctrine and it's radically different at every turn. And we wonder why the church has proven in many regards ineffective, unproductive, and despised among the world, not just for our honor of Jesus Christ, which the world, Jesus said we will be persecuted, but we garner no credibility, certain individuals, by their treatment of this book. We do not carry ourselves with any credibility when churches are adhering their life and their practice to theological liberalism. There's no foot that they can stand on, there's no authority from which to speak of. And so eventually their pulpits start to sound exactly like the world sounds. And the world takes notice. I point this out because it's appropriate to include this type of observation with our own day. When you're thinking about and pondering, and placing your confidence in the inspiration of Scripture and in all that it entails. 
Next week, we're going to unpack the evidence and believability, and as well as the implications and applications of God's Word. Just in closing, I want to ask you a few questions this morning. We don't have to... Maybe these are some that you mull over. Again, some of you have already worked through your lesson, and we've got a week or two left on this subject. What do you do in the meantime? Ask these questions. Again, consume supplemental reading. Listen to other sermons. First, I would have you ponder, do you think you would pay more attention if God spoke to you from heaven or through the voice of a living prophet than if he spoke to you from the written words of Scripture? Would you pay more attention? Would you believe or obey such words more readily than you do Scripture itself? Do you think your present level of response to the written words of Scripture is an appropriate and fourth and finally, what positive steps can you take to make your attitude towards Scripture more like the kind of attitude God wants you to have? Practical steps that you can take to make sure that your attitude towards the Bible is what it ought to be. Well, let's go ahead and pray for this morning. Pray for our pastor who will open up this inspired book. We're going to be looking at Psalm 32 this morning, so we want to pray that our hearts can be ready, and I pray that our confidence in the book that we're going to place our lives under would be strengthened this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these deep waters. We've worked through doctrine. We thank you for the way in which it enriches our soul. It starts to put pieces in mind of how things came to be. It starts to overwhelm us of how your sovereignty has manifested itself throughout the ages. That you would use imperfect, flawed men. And you would move through your Holy Spirit in their lives in such a way that they would record exactly what you wanted us to have through 66 books that is our Bibles. Lord, we pray that you would make us thirsty and hungry. For every component of it from start to finish. May we be diligent to consume it. May we be diligent to memorize it. And Lord, where our lives are not aligned to it, Lord, we ask that you convict us and challenge us. Lord, even this morning, no doubt attitudes and thoughts and ways of thinking which are not in line with how you would have us think. What you've revealed your will to be for our lives. Lord, we pray that as we enter into the next service, that you would humble us, convict us of all unrighteousness, see if there be any offensive way in us. Lord, would you do this gracious work so that we could enter the next hour humble and grateful by your amazing grace to reveal yourself, your Son, and the pathway of receiving life through his work on the cross. Lord, we pray this now in his name. Amen.